Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, nurses tell what it's like caring for patients at a hospital on Long Island that was hard hit by the pandemic. These patients are a lot more fragile than anybody that I've ever taken care of. Something as simple as turning and repositioning them really completely plummets their ability to breathe for about 30 minutes. So we have to really handle these patients with care. A nurse practitioner discusses what's different about substance use treatment during COVID-19. We don't have the visibility that we used to have. And a lot of the measures that are put on society right now to try to keep the pandemic under control also impacted our ability to engage with patients. And a psychologist will talk about the benefits of a resilient attitude during financially worrisome times. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, a nurse practitioner discusses what's different about substance use treatment during COVID-19. Then, a psychologist will talk about the benefits of a resilient attitude during financially worrisome times. But first, nurses talk about what it's like caring for patients at a hospital on Long Island that was hard hit by the pandemic. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When colleagues at Stony Brook University Hospital asked for help caring for patients during the coronavirus pandemic, dozens of nurses and pharmacists from Upstate University Hospital volunteered for the mission. Talking with me by web conferencing software are nurses Emery House and Rachel Carnicelli. Welcome to both of you to HealthLink on Air. Good morning, this is Emery. Hi, this is Rachel. Thank you for having us. Hi. Well, let me ask each of you, um, sort of just tell us why you were willing to volunteer for this, because it seems sort of dangerous. So for us, it wasn't as much of a matter of why, it's more of a why not. We found this to be a mutually beneficial situation for the staff at Stony Brook, as well as us. We knew that they were in pretty desperate need for help, and it's certainly not going to hurt us to go and learn more about this disease. So we thought it would be good for everybody overall. It was definitely an experience that as healthcare workers, we could take a part of, which is um, something that not everyone gets to do. So it's nice that we have this opportunity. Can you talk to me about what it was like leaving upstate? Because you went out kind of in a caravan altogether, right? Yes, there was a variety of emotions that day. I think the best way to describe things for me was surprising. We knew that we needed to show up to the hospital to get, um, they were sending us with some PPE, some masks and gowns and whatnot. We did not know that we were gonna have the type of support there. So it was surprising. It was a bit overwhelming as we didn't anticipate that. But I think also overall, it was very reassuring how much support we had in this process. Yeah, there, were, there was a big crowd there cheering you on. And was there a police escort for quite a ways? Yes, I believe the escort ended at Cortland, so it was quite a ways. It was very nice. Neat. Well, now I'm talking to you. You're still at Stony Brook. So can Correct. you kind of tell me, and this I, I believe is your your day off sort of, but um, can you sort of describe for me what your days are like? Yes, um, so we're working the same type shifts that we do at home. We're both day shift, 12-hour day nurses. So the days are 12 and a half to 13-hour days, and they are extremely busy. So tell me, um, Emery, what, what sort of nursing do you do at Upstate? What unit do you work on, and, and Rachel also? And then are you doing sort of the same unit there? So. I do the critical care support pool. So I float amongst all of the critical care units at Upstate. Um, and 
although I'm working on what's considered the cardiothoracic ICU at Stony Brook, almost everything has been converted to what we reference as a MICU because a lot of the COVID patients are what we consider MICU patients. So is MICU medical ICU? Correct. Okay. And then I work on one of the medical ICUs at Upstate, and I'm also working on a medical ICU at Stony Brook. So the environment and the patient care is very similar to what I'm used to. It's just kind of getting used to working with new people and their equipment slightly different. That's kind of been the biggest struggle. All right. Well, so are you're taking care of patients with COVID or do you also have patients that are not infected? Um, the unit that I'm on is all COVID positive patients. And same for me. So how sick are they? Are, are, are all of your patients on ventilators to be in the ICU? Are they on a ventilator? So this differs a little bit on the unit that I'm on. Basically, the attending doctor kind of directs the care of how we're going to manage these patients. And that's the same at home or here. My attending here likes to have his patients intubated. Um, And these patients are some of the sickest people that you can imagine. Okay. Then the, the unit that I'm on, they're trying to prevent intubation. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have been ending up intubated. So our, each of our floors are trying different forms of care, but it seems as if the patients are all kind of ending up with the same treatment plan. What are the age range of your patients? That's, that's one of the surprises. Um, I think that a lot of people, ourselves included, when COVID came about, we considered it pretty similar to the flu. Like, okay, this is a virus. People who are immunocompromised or elderly are going to be more susceptible. This is not selective whatsoever. I have patients that are my age. Um, We do have elderly patients as well, but I've seen patients in their 20s up to their 70s with this. And And that's pretty much the same. Are they patients that have pre-existing conditions or are they previously like healthy patients? That's another surprise is that we would expect a, a laundry list of past medical history for these patients, but that this does not exist. I don't know if some component of that is that maybe some of these patients haven't been diagnosed with whatever conditions they may have had. I don't know if maybe they haven't sought out health care to know that they have pre-existing conditions, but many times we're hearing these patients have no known medical history. What we've seen on the news is that uh, people with COVID generally have a fever, cough, aches. Is, Is that what you're seeing? So a lot of the patients that I've been seeing are coming in with fevers and cough, um, but there are many that are coming in for things not related to that, um, like diabetic issues, and then they get swabbed and they're COVID positive. So it almost seems like it doesn't necessarily matter what you come in with. There's a lot of people in the community that are just positive with COVID. What about in terms of treatment? I mean, you've mentioned ventilators. But are there medications or what else is being done to help them while they're in the hospital? A lot of the medical management on my end is trying to create the proper balance with the ventilator and the medications needed to keep them hemodynamically stable. So I'm on the unit, again, of most intubated patients. Like Everybody on my unit is already intubated. And because of that, because we want the ventilator to optimally work, we have the patients pretty well sedated, which in this case takes a lot of medication, but sometimes you give one med and then you come up with a, a problem. So if you're, you're sedating them too much, you might have changes in their vital signs and you might have to give them another drip to fix this problem or that problem. And then if they start fighting the vents, then we have to go up on the sedative. It's it's very difficult to find the right balance, and that's what we tend to spend most of our time doing is figuring out the right balance of vent setting and drips. Keep the patient comfortable enough to tolerate the vent, but allow the vent to do the work for them until they can hopefully recover. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurses Emery House and Rachel Carnicelli. They're two uh, of the Upstate nurses who volunteered to travel to Stony Brook to help care for patients during the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm assuming that you're wearing uh, the PPE, personal protective equipment, from the beginning to the end of your shift. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Is that difficult to do? I would say it, it's not difficult to do. I mean, it does get kind of hot sometimes when you're in your gown. We wear an N95 mask at all times with a surgical mask on top of it. Um, and it does get hot and uncomfortable. But for me, the hardest part is remembering to put it on in the sense that if something emergent happens, you have to stop, get dressed in your PPE before you can go in the room. And that can get kind of frustrating. Rachel is on what's considered a clean unit. So all of their rooms are negative pressure. So they have the ability to take off some of the equipment in between patients. I do not, I work on a dirty unit. So I am in all of that all day. Well, and if I understand correctly there, I mean, there's no visitors. So you're not interacting with the patient's family members, right? Correct. Or, or maybe are you in, are you talking to them in other methods? It, it, they're not there in person, but are you able to communicate with them? Um, we too are able to call them, and they do have some ability to like FaceTime them or Zoom with them. So if they want, they can see their loved one, um, which I've done a couple times with families. Well, let me ask you this: What have you learned that you'll be bringing back to Upstate? I guess. Um, one thing is that these patients come in typically with respiratory issues, but by the time that they've been through the hospital, they usually have more than just respiratory issues. They develop kidney issues, neurological issues, and there's a lot that goes into it. So just being aware of the kind of their full body, not just the respiratory component. I think that that's a really good way to put it because again, as we all kind of viewed this virus at first to be a respiratory disorder, but we're realizing kind of multi-system organ dysfunction going on here. These patients are a lot more fragile than anybody that I've ever taken care of. Something as simple as turning and repositioning them really completely plummets their ability to breathe for about 30 minutes following doing so. So we have to really handle these patients with care. And then also something that we've been doing down here is clustering care. They try to have you go in the room less frequently and get all of the things done that you need to do so that A, we can minimize our exposure, B, we can minimize the use of PPE, and C, allow the patients to get a little bit more rest in between times that we go in to do what we need to do. Interesting. Well, is there anything else that has surprised you either about the patients or the staff or the disease in your time there? Um, like we said, the patients being a lot younger and otherwise relatively healthy has been a bit of a surprise. Well, what are your accommodations like? So we're staying at a Holiday Inn very close to the hospital, which is nice. It's a quick drive to work. And is that, are you getting all of your meals at the hotel or do you, is the hospital feeding you during the day? Well, both. Okay. I answer both. Um, we do have a food stipend provided, a daily food stipend that we get. But I will say the community down here, the support that they have for the nursing staff is unbelievable. Food is being sent to the hospital every single day for the staff. Wow. That's so on nice days to off have... like today, we'll be ordering food. But when we're at work, there's usually food already sent in. That's nice not to have to worry about that then. Yeah. So how difficult was it for you to separate from your families to travel? So in a sense of separating from family, both Rachel and I went to Africa a few months back. And that was a two-week voyage where we actually really couldn't talk to our family due to service issues and whatnot. So I personally don't find this to be as bad because we can still, you know, FaceTime our family at night or on our days off. So, yes, it's, I mean, it's not fun to be away from your family, but we all kind of have to be away from everybody right now anyway. So calling from a hotel room rather than my own bedroom, really. You mentioned your trip to Africa. Was that a medical mission? 
it was a community and healthcare mission. We did a lot of community development and building projects. So we also did some healthcare education while we were down there. So you're all working together and staying together in the same hotel, but it's not just nurses and doctors that you're with up there, correct? Correct. We are working with an excellent team at Stony Brook. And unfortunately, I think that some of the recognition does go unnoticed. A lot of focus is placed on nurses and doctors. And don't get me wrong, I understand that very much. But I will say a couple of other disciplines that really deserve some acknowledgement would be our respiratory therapist and our housekeeping staff. Vital, vital members of the team, it sounds like. They definitely are. They keep the rooms clean, open, and ready for more patients to come in. And they're in the rooms oftentimes just as much as we are. So I guess for everyone, uh, no one's experienced a pandemic like this before. And in nursing, this is, you haven't seen anything like this, correct? Does it compare correct. to anything that you, you've uh, dealt with in the past? No. You mentioned- I couldn't oh, have even imagined something like this. Thank you to nurses Emery House and Rachel Carnicelli. They're two of the upstate nurses who volunteered to travel to Long Island to help care for patients during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what's different about substance use treatment during COVID-19? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. COVID-19 might create conditions that threaten recovery for people in substance use treatment. I'm talking with psychiatric nurse practitioner John Rehysen from Upstate University Hospital's Addiction and Pain Service via web conference. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air. You're most welcome, Amber. Well, let's talk about how things are different during the COVID-19 pandemic with regard to substance use treatment. It's certainly an unsettling time for all of us, but for someone who's in treatment, um, what are the issues that concern you? The big issues that are concerning to us right now is the social distancing and the shelter in place and a lot of the measures that are being put on society right now to try to keep the pandemic under control have also impacted our ability to engage with patients. We don't have the visibility that we used to have. Um, people coming into the office, being able to put eyes on them doesn't happen anymore. Most of my patients are being seen the way that we're talking right now over a video conference, whether it's WebEx or Zoom or whatever platform that they're comfortable with. That's how we're engaging with our individual psychotherapy patients. And then a lot of the group settings, uh, AA, NA, your 12-step programs were shut down when their community centers and their locations went away. And then similarly on our service, we had a group session for buprenorphine maintenance for opioid use disorder that is no longer But the, I'm assuming the dealers are still available and dealing, right? The dealers are very available. They are not restricted by any of the, you know, they don't have to do curbside pickup. They don't have to do right. six feet between them and the person that they want to deal with. So, yeah, as far as the drug trade, especially the illicit drug trade in town is concerned, business is booming. Wow. Well, let's talk about. Uh, what is what are you doing specifically? What is your practice doing? Um, how are you staying in touch with people? As I mentioned before, the primary thing that we're doing with most of our patients is we're engaging them through telehealth or telepsychiatry, where we're using video conferencing, even just doing uh, phone conversations and phone consultations to stay in touch with our patients and maintain our contact with them that way. 
but we are also open for business. We are still seeing patients face to face because we are an essential service and part of our hospital. So all of our staff are wearing masks in accordance with the CDC guidelines. We have taken extra cleaning precautions in our public areas and with any of the common medical equipment that we use, like our blood pressure cuffs, uh, stethoscopes, anything like that that we use here in the office. We're washing those more frequently in between patients. We're washing our hands in between patients and every single time that we have contact with somebody. And then we're maintaining the social distancing that's appropriate. Uh, some of our offices where you know, we take them off and this is where you sit, this is where I sit. We allow the six feet as the patient comes into the room to maintain the proper social distancing as well. And your offices physically are not in the hospital proper, correct? Correct. We are located at 600 East Genesee Street in suite number 217. So we are not in the actual hospital proper. So we are not uh, as close to, you know, the hotbed, to say, as far as, you know, people coming in, passing through that think or might be there for screening or anything like that. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about that coming into the office. And that's one of the other things that we've done is anybody who comes into the office is being asked the same questions as if you were to enter the hospital. As far as travel, have you been experiencing any kind of symptoms? And then they go through the typical COVID-19 symptoms, a fever, trouble breathing, dry cough. And we're taking everybody's temperature before we're seeing face-to-face -face as well. So any listeners who are struggling with substance use issues, they can still contact you. They can still call 315-464-3130 to learn more and to, to set up an appointment, right? Certainly. They're, they're more than welcome to call us and to set up an appointment. The only requirement for an initial appointment is that you have to be accompanied by what we call a sober support person. The reason for this is that it starts that idea of building personal relationships that are going to help you with your abstinence and eventually your sobriety from substances. And we ask that that person uh, accompany you to the first appointment, but in your follow-up appointments, that person isn't required. It's just somebody else to listen to the process and hear all the information so that you can go home and have a conversation and form a decision about what kind of treatment. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with nurse practitioner John Ringheisen about substance use treatment during the pandemic. So I wanted to talk to you about what you're doing to re-educate patients in terms of, well, for instance, tobacco use. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing this subject up because COVID-19 is a respiratory disease. And a lot of the re-education that we're doing with our people that are addicted to nicotine and choose to inhale their nicotine by either traditional cigarettes or vape, or this also applies to cannabis or marijuana use. Um, tobacco use increases the chances of getting infected. Uh, you're inhaling something that's irritating your bronchioles, the little branches inside of your lungs that allow oxygen to get into your bloodstream. And so by irritating all of that, you're creating a very ripe, very rich environment for the virus to take hold. So your ability to get infected is increased. And, and then I've, on top of it, the there's little things that look like fingers in your lungs called cilia that are designed to sweep virus out of your lungs when you cough. And those get paralyzed when you inhale smoke. And so now you've paralyzed what's supposed to get the virus out. You've created a ripe environment for the virus to take hold. And so your ability to get infected and your mortality, if you do become infected, is increased size. Well, that's what I've heard. If, if you go into this, if you get infected with the coronavirus and you've got lung damage, apparently you're at greater risk for having a worse outcome. Correct. Well, and go ahead. The, the literature that we're seeing right now is showing that as far as your ability to get in COVID-19, if you've got uh, existing lung damage or if you're an active smoker right now, uh, 
any substance. This includes vaping is 14. Now, what about uh, alcohol use? I know liquor stores are still open. They've been deemed an essential business. Um, are you seeing or are you afraid that uh, some of your patients may be uh, turning to liquor more? Yeah, that's one of the things that we have noticed. Uh, it was kind of a pendulum swing where before word got out that liquor stores were going to be deemed as essential businesses, we actually had a spike in our intakes. We had a lot of people crashing the door that were terrified that they were going to go into withdrawal because alcohol wasn't going to be available. And so we actually ended up detoxing because we had a very successful outpatient detox procedure here where instead of having to be in the hospital and spend a couple of days being detoxed from alcohol, you come into our service within a couple of hours, you're safe to go home, sleep in your bed. And as long as somebody's there to kind of watch over you, because you're going to be very tired and a little sedated from the medication that we give you. Um, it's a very safe outpatient procedure to to detox from alcohol because uh, it's one of the only life-threatening detoxes because we're so worried about you having a seizure. Um, so that's something that we really encourage a lot of people that if you're noticing that you're drinking more or that you're becoming tolerant because you're trying to use alcohol to cope with depression or to cope with a very confrontational home environment that you can't escape. You know, we've seen a lot of things in the news about the increase in violence uh, as a result of COVID-19 and people trapped at home with their abusers. You know, we yeah. highly encourage and welcome them to come into the service. Well, uh, I believe some of the detox you sort of uh, patients are, are uh, reliant on Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to, to get through also, right? And if yeah. those have been sort of put on hold or put online, how's that working out? Uh, it's been a mixed review. Uh, and it's the biggest concern that a lot of people have with AA getting pushed online into these group forums is uh, some people are really concerned about how anonymous is it? Um, is somebody recording me in the background or a lot of times when you would go to these meetings in person, people would use a pseudonym or just their first name. And so you have to be very conscious about your settings on whatever video conferencing platform that you're using to make sure that your name appears the way that you want it to when you enter the room. And so that's, you know, kind of the logistics struggle that we're seeing people going through with relearning how to engage with AA. And then there's also just trying to be related to the rest of the room. I mean, you know, what's the etiquette and when it's my turn to speak or how do I have a relationship with, you know, Tom, whose face I used to see, but now Tom's just an icon of this weird, you know, idyllic scene of an island. You know, how do I have a conversation with a picture of an island on online? So, yeah, some of the personalness is uh, is difficult to replicate. Yeah, it, you know, especially in a group setting, and we're we're having this, we're noticing this as well in our individual therapy as well, where having that relationship, being able to be related with the other person on the other end of the camera is much more difficult than doing it face-to-face. -face. Well, what do you recommend that would help people be connected in isolation? Because I know, I think one of your concerns is that um, isolation increases the use of substances, perhaps. Yeah, that's a really big concern right now is that the idea that everybody being more isolated, that you know, we said businesses is booming among the drug dealers. We've noticed a marked increase in alcohol use. So we would have to from that correlate the idea that there's probably a marked increase in nicotine use as well. And so some of the things that we are trying to do to help people find a better way to cope with this or a better way to get through this pandemic is to find ways that are supportive 
in their own environment or to understand that a lot of the resources that were supportive and external to you are still available, which is one of the reasons why I'm doing this interview with you right now is to get the word out that we are open for business still. Yeah, that's good to know. Now, some of your patients are on maintenance medications, correct? Correct. So talk to me about the difference between maintenance versus, you know, a drug-free during the pandemic. Um, Maintenance versus drug-free really comes into the specificities of how we're addressing the opioid crisis and in the country right now. Uh, Suboxone or buprenorphine is the primary means that is being pushed for the opioid crisis right now. And it's harm reduction. It's getting people off of opioids that are known to kill them and have a high mortality rate and putting them on an opioid that has a low, if not negligible ability to kill somebody. There's a lot of people are confused on that. They think that Suboxone is a medication that you go on to to get off of opioids, and that's a myth. Suboxone is an opioid. It's an opioid with a very long half-life. And so Suboxone maintenance is designed to give you just enough opioid that you don't feel like you need to go out and use street drugs, which... uh, And so what we're struggling with in our maintenance groups is we recognize that a lot of these people are starting to use other substances in conjunction with their maintenance, uh, primarily stimulants. Uh, The group sessions that we used to hold are, are not being conducted and the urine drug screens that we used to do to make sure that there weren't any other drugs. Because the goal of our group sessions is to be abstinent from all other drugs except for your maintenance. Uh, so we're not able to, to do those urine drug screens because the proximity and everything else is just too much of a threat right now to, to our staff to do those screens. And so it's a very complex and a very dangerous situation where you know, those are the few exceptions to who we are seeing regularly on an individual basis just to put eyes on here in the office for follow-up appointments is a lot of the people from our maintenance groups because they're on our dead list. We're afraid that they're going to die if we don't put eyes on them every week. Right? So, but the patients are able to get their the Suboxone or the medication that they need. Yeah. That's still... Yeah, okay. certainly. We are, we are, are ones that we feel confident... Uh, are being appropriate with their maintenance and that are not at risk of using other substances or alcohol and have been historically compliant with their maintenance. Um, We're pushing them to two-week and even month-long prescriptions rather than weekly prescriptions. Okay. Well, before we run out of time, I want to ask, do you have suggestions for the loved ones, if if we know of someone that is does have a substance use issue, what can we be doing to help them during this time? That's a really good question. And the best thing that I can offer is that we're open. Give us a call, 315-464-3130, and be the sober support person to come into the office here and get that person the help that they need. If the idea of going out into public or coming to a medical facility is too anxiety provoking to come out of the house and engage in treatment, then call. There's other services in town that are doing virtual intakes. Uh, There's other resources with online AA and online NA groups. Al-Anon is also a support group for the family members and people that are affected by the substance user that are available online. I would encourage people to find those resources and try to 
shop around and find a place that's comfortable for them to talk. Very useful information. I want to thank you so much to nurse practitioner John Ringheisen from Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How a resilient attitude helps during financially worrisome times. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you've been feeling panicky in recent weeks about your 401k or other stock investments, you're not alone. With me via web conferencing to talk about managing those feelings is psychologist Brett Steenbarger. He's a clinical associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate, who also works as a performance coach for hedge fund portfolio managers and traders, and he's the author of several books on trading psychology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Steenbarger. Well, thanks for having me, Amber. Now, the pandemic has many of us worried about a lot of things, one of those things being financial security. Given what's happened with the stock market for people with 401ks or mutual funds, what, what would you say? I would say that this is a time of great uncertainty. And if people are feeling uncertain, if if people have some anxiety around that, uh, I believe that's a rational response because we don't know the ultimate course of this viral outbreak. What happened is from uh, February forward, for about a month's period of time, we dropped 30 percent in major stock market averages, and we saw large drops in bonds as well. So the two asset classes that make up most investors' portfolios both dropped very quickly, very much. Now, since then, we've had a significant rally, and so people are wondering, should I take some profits should I hang in there? Is it just that we need to buckle up because of the ups and the downs? Because 30% is huge, right? 30% is really huge. And then we had roughly a 20% bounce in a matter of a couple of weeks after that, you know, responding to some better numbers with the virus and responding to some uh, programs to uh, put money in the economy and so forth. Uh, So it's the volatility that people are having trouble dealing with. Well, is there anything that we can learn about dealing with that volatility based on previous stock market downturns or or crashes? Uh, Yes. And I recently wrote a Forbes article on this very topic. What has happened when we've had volatile declines and then volatile rises is that the market tends to stay volatile. And in many cases, there are further losses ahead. And so people looking to protect their investments should look to be in in safe places with important chunks of their money, so to speak. There are some investments that are much safer than others in this kind of volatile environment, and those may not return as much money, but they can help ensure a return of your money. And so if you work with someone to get your investments in in what are deemed safer, you know, investments, that should help you cope with the volatility? Well, it helps your portfolio cope with the volatility, and that can help people deal with the volatility. Now, now people are dealing with two sources of uncertainty, right, Amber? We're, we're dealing with uncertainty about financial markets, but we're also dealing with the uncertainty of the virus situation itself. We don't know when a vaccine will be developed. We don't know 
when it will be safe once again to go outdoors and congregate and so forth. And so there's a lot of personal uncertainty on top of the financial uh, insecurity. And adding to people's fear about the stock market, a lot of people are furloughed from work or laid off from their job. You know, there's a lot of financial stuff happening all at once. Yes, yes. And And rules have been relaxed to allow people to access greater amounts of their retirement accounts without penalty if they need to draw on those savings. And so that is helpful. Uh, But what I can tell you that I have done in my accounts is make sure that the bulk of the money is very safe in investment grade bonds. So bonds in entities that are financially strong and a good amount of money is invested in bank certificates of deposit that are federally insured so that uh, the bulk of my money is insulated from the volatility of the stock market. Now, in terms of the uncertainty about the virus itself, which we we see started in Asia and Europe is dealing with it as well, the whole world is dealing with it, but are there things we can learn by watching the markets in Asia and Europe? Are they sort of, they've been ahead of us with, uh, the impact of the virus on their communities, is their stock market also ahead of ours? Uh, they, the markets have been moving relatively in concert, and, re- and very recently there have been, uh, there's been an up, uh, a, a concerning uptick in the number of cases in uh, some of the Asian uh, locations. Uh, so the Asian markets have been vulnerable just like ours and, and have been moving pretty similarly uh, to ours. Uh, And so we had the big drop together and we had the uh, recent bounce uh, together. All right. Well, you've written that the smartest money managers that you know are taking extra steps to maximize their energy and mindset. What are they doing specifically and how is it helping them? And and that really is one of the things I think can be most important to listeners. One is keep your savings in safe places so that your accounts aren't going through the volatility. And the second thing is we can't control the outcome of the virus, but there are things in our lives we can control. What the research in psychology teaches us is that if we have many sources of well-being, if we have happiness and fulfillment in our lives, if we're doing things that give us energy, then we can balance stresses in our lives so that those stresses don't become distresses. And so our lifestyle becomes important, doing things that bring us closer to people, doing things that give us energy, like working out, focusing on what we can control is one of the best ways of weathering this storm. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychologist Brett Steenbarger about managing stress about financial security. Let me ask you for some advice on social distancing and how it's it's sort of turned our routines upside down. So many of us are working at home with kids doing school at home. What do we need to know about weathering this time? The the people I work with who have done best during this period of social distancing have become very good at connecting with people virtually. In other words, they don't allow the social distancing to create social isolation. They're actively reaching out, they're making use of teamwork, they're doing a lot of video chatting and meeting. So they're becoming creative with their teamwork, but they're also reaching out to family and friends and keeping engaged in the social way. So then that takes effort. It takes effort and it takes a little bit of creativity, right? Uh, Yes, Uh, but the alternative of being isolated and being passive really contributes to lower energy, more discouragement, 
and can make it harder to uh, deal with the situation. So the other thing we're seeing, in fact, one one other idea is uh, relevant to listeners is we're seeing much better teamwork at home, where you know both members of a couple may be working from home and the kids are at home. And so they have to really help each other out, taking care of the kids and taking care of the home and allowing each other to get their work done. A lot of coordination, a lot of teamwork uh, among couples. And when they work on that, it really pays off in terms of the environment and the family. Uh, do you have you heard of people that are struggling with this in terms of, you know, not wanting to get out of bed sort of the beginnings of depression, because there is so much uncertainty, it can be paralyzing. Do you do you have any words of advice to kind of combat that? Yes, and, and that's a great question, Amber. And we're seeing it particularly with young people who have been laid off, who might be living alone, or older people who are living alone, and whatever social contacts they may have had are not there anymore whatever work they had is not there anymore. And so that can become very isolating and very depressing. And what we're seeing is that when we actively reach out, when those people make active attempts to reach out to others, they feel better. There was one person I was talking to recently who just made some active attempts to clean and reorganize their apartment and ah. make their living space much nicer. It was something they could control amidst a larger situation that doesn't offer a lot of control, but they felt a lot better having done that. So setting up a project for yourself or projects, plural, um, gives you sort of something to get out of bed for, it sounds like. Great point. Uh, a project implies a goal. And whenever we do things that are goal-oriented, we're looking forward. Uh, we're, we're not static. And I would say that that includes projects that we might include others in. There's no reason we can't have team projects, family projects, that people living at home uh, together can have projects together, uh, shared projects. Uh, that can be meaningful. Uh, I'm working with uh, my youngest son and one of our projects is we're learning trading together. We're learning about financial markets together. And it's a way of staying engaged. It's a way of learning about things. And, and who knows, maybe, maybe it'll be profitable as well. Good. Well, thank you so much to Brett Steenbarger, a psychologist from Upstate, who also works as a performance coach for hedge fund portfolio managers and traders. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poetry happens everywhere, as Marley Stewart, assistant editor of Louisiana Literature, poet and short story writer, reminds us in his evocative poem, Pastry Cream Reverie. His speaker, a pastry chef, is focused on his craft yet able to create a lovely meditation for us at the same time. I'm trying to remember what it was, stirring tempered eggs into hot milk and sugar at the shop today. What exactly ran through my mind as the foam cooked off and the cream began to spit? What was it? The cream was turning out well, hot enough to set when I poured in the eggs. Steam crept up my arms, then snuck back into the pot like a request withdrawn, and the foam cooked off. The cream thickened and began to spit. But wasn't there something before I emptied the cream into pans to cool? Something there and lost in the pot, like a drop of sweat wixed in? Something that stopped the steam on the crook of my arm while the bell rang over the door? It was good to know the milk was hot enough already, and I wouldn't risk burning it turning up the flame after adding the eggs. Maybe it was that small reassurance, nothing else. How much of life comes down to a steady hand and patience? The second poem is from poet Alf 
Abu Hajla from Tahoe, California. He takes a look at adolescence from the vantage point of adulthood and sees what he lacked and what he's tried to provide his own family. Here is Evening Feast. When mom passed out from painkillers, leaving me cold plates of love, sometimes with a note, I'd live off nothing but domestic fantasies for days. Under dripping autumn branches, I watched entire families gather in white linen kitchen windows for their nightly rituals. With hurried hands and still dressed in office clothes, husband and wife silently reconnect over their disappointing son who stares at a Depeche Mode poster wishing he was free from curfews and consequences. Expectations I would only lie about when I said mom wants me home by sunset or at least before they turn on the streetlights. A rule my daughters know well as they rush back to our house where you stand in the open kitchen among steamed rice and fried fish ready to serve dinner. The overweight dog snorts by the fireplace, chasing his own nightmares. Outside, in the early winter rain, eyes move unnoticed through the trees. A starved young heart in the dark, feasting on our intimate performance. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.